How you doing? You okay this morning, church? There you go. It's good to see you. I'm so glad that we get to be together today. My name is Josh. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at Clear Creek. So if this is your first time, welcome to the family. We love you. We're glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you better. After our gathering, come join us at the Next Step table in the lobby. Uh, We'd love to be able to help answer your questions, help you get connected. Uh, Anything we can do to welcome you to this family, we would love to do so. Now, you've picked a great Sunday to be here because we are in a series called Adore. God's gift of marriage, sex, and singleness. Now, a couple things before we get into today's teaching. Just a quick preview. Next Sunday, mamas, daddies, this is especially for you. Next week, we are going to talk about sex. <sighs> Take a deep breath. We are going to be thoughtful about what we say because we want to be tender to the tender ears present, but we want to be a place where we can talk about all of God's good gifts, not just some of them. By the way, just a quick question. By the way, here's the answer. The answer is God. Okay, okay, hold on. Who came up with the idea of and created the act of sex? Remember, the answer is God. Oh, good, good, good. Now, everything God makes, is it good? Yes. Do we want to be a church that talks about him? Hold off till next week, fellas. Hold off. Okay. But we want to be a church that celebrates all good gifts from God and understand it. Because, listen, if we can't talk about it, Here, our children will learn about it somewhere, and they will not understand what God intended if we don't teach them. So we're going to talk next week. By the way, for some of you who are still nervous, look, I'm going to talk in a way that my 7-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old son will be just fine. So will yours. So join us next Sunday. Second thing, I want to give you just a quick recap on where we were last week because it sets up where we're going for the remainder of our time during this teaching. Last week, here's the key idea. We said that my relationship, this is a faulty view, but it's a common one, that my relationship... It's supposed to make me happy. And we say, well, what's the alternative, Diggs? If it's not to make me happy, is it to make me miserable? And some of you are like, done. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> let's be honest. We're in church, but we've got to be honest. Here we go. What we said is that if you live your life looking for happiness in all of your relationships, there's a word for that. That if you're seeking happiness and your happiness above all, and the word is selfish. In fact, the image that I thought of this week is a marriage with two people who say happiness, my happiness is ultimate goal. It's like two mosquitoes feeding off of one another. A lot of energy, but nothing gets done. You only feel drained. And so he said, this, although common in our culture, is not the way God intended. Instead, we said the corrective is not to pursue happiness, but rather put commitment Put covenant, put I'm in it to win it before happiness. And what God often will give you as a result when you are together in common cause is you will find happiness because you are seeking something bigger than your personal happiness. So that was where we started. And today I want us to deal with another common myth. This is so common, in fact, it it may not even sound weird to you. And and real quick, today I want to talk primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to my single friends. So if you are single, if you're dating, if you'd like to be dating, if you'd like to be dating someone else, then you're dating. This is for you. Now, Now, married people, married people, listen. You, this is for you as well, and here's why. If you will grab hold of and dismantle the myth, because this myth carries and follows us from dating into marriage. 
And if this myth has in any way grabbed hold of your heart, it will corrupt and damage your marriage. This is for you as well, but I want to talk to my single and dating friends this morning. Because here's the myth. Are you ready? The myth goes like this. There is one right person for me. There's one right woman or one right man for me. And my goal is to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. This is so common, we don't even see how this may not be right. After all, here's where we hear. We hear about it in our movies. We hear about it in our TV shows. We hear about it in books we read. We even hear about it from friends. After all, we'll have phrases like, I'm just looking to find the one. Or I'm looking for my soul mate. Or I'm looking for someone who will complete me. Thank you, Jerry Maguire. And so we're looking for the one and the one or the soulmate. If I find this person, there's some assumptions that come with this myth. Some of the assumptions are these. Here's the first assumption with this, that the right person will make everything all right. That if I'm facing something wrong in life, it must be because I'm with the wrong person. Because if I'm with the right person, then everything will be all right. Sure, sure, sure. It won't be perfect. There will be some challenges. I'm sure we'll disagree from time to time. But otherwise, it'll be absolutely perfect. She will wake up looking like she did the day she walked through the door of our wedding. His breath will be amazing. It will not smell like what it smells like. It'll just be perfect. When I'm with the right one, everything will be all right. We won't fight about money. We will have passion to spare because the myth says if you're with the right one, you and everything else will be all right. Now, there's some major problems with this assumption, aren't there? First off, reality. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you are married? Let's see some hands this morning. Keep your hands up if you have ever had, let's just call it intense fellowship with your spouse. Go ahead. Now you've got two options here. Either you're with the wrong one or there's something else going on. See, this myth, this myth, this idea, the right person will make everything all right, leads us to another assumption. This is the other assumption, that the right person is really a perfect person. Because for things to be all right, you've got to be perfect. Do you believe, and the answer is yes, by the way, do you believe that this will crush the person you're with if you believe they are responsible for your happiness? Absolutely. If I just find the right person, the perfect person, then we won't fight, we won't have issues, everything will be all right. Here's another assumption that comes from this. If everything isn't all right, then they, (laughs) must be truthful, they must be the, say this with me, wrong person. Because if I find my soulmate, then everything's going to be okay. So if everything's not okay, then I got the wrong person. By the way, this is such an interesting idea. And, and we follow this. In fact, single people, I know you hate it, but you'll say things to married people and be like, how will I know when I find the right one? And married people, we do not do them any favors because we give great advice like this. We'll say, you'll know. <laughs> and you'll just know. And, and, then, and then if you're a Christian, if you're looking for someone, you start to look around in your pool, your, your swimming pond, and you're like, okay, where can I find the right one? Listen, I had it hard. I was homeschooled. So if I'm going to look for someone in my own school, I've got three options, and we don't live in Arkansas, so that's not a possibility. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry. 
Is that too, too close to home? Sorry. <laughs> so then you go, okay, well, it's the church, and I'll look around the church. And so then, looking for the right one, it's like if you see someone who is breathing and around your age, you will chase them into the parking lot, tackle them, and ask them to marry you. That is about all you've got if this is the way it works. And then the myth, if, if everything isn't all right, then they must be the wrong person. This actually leads to another assumption. This assumption is that, well, it's because I'm the, say this with me, right person. Isn't that true, though? We always assume that I'm the right person, and the problem isn't with me. The problem is with them. In fact, if I'm the right person, it means that they're the problem. Because if everything's all right, if I'm with the right person, and things aren't all right all the time, then it means I can't possibly be the problem. It must be you. It's that great lie. The great lie. You've heard this if you've ever been broken up with, or, or maybe you've said this lie when you've broken up with someone, and you know the lie. It goes like this. It's, it's not you. It's what? It's me. Now, what do we really mean? Oh, no, it's really you. That's what we mean. It's a lie. But the truth is, there's something going on there, because when we say, I'm the right person, they're the problem, ultimately, here's what we're saying, that my problems are external. That my problems are external. If things aren't all right in my personal life, dating life, married life, single again life, the problem is you. It can't possibly be me. Is it any wonder that marriages, divorce rates, are going up with this kind of a view? Is it any wonder? That many are waiting longer and longer to get married. After all, I've got to find the perfect person. And there's this incredible weight that says, if I get it wrong, everything is wrong. And is it any wonder that many people are not simply waiting longer to get married, but they're practicing or pretending to be married by living together before they're married so that they can sort of see if they're compatible. So this is the myth. And I've got to tell you, it doesn't just happen out there. It happens in the church, and it is absolutely destructive to what God is wanting us to do and what God is wanting us to experience. And so this morning, for our few minutes remaining, I want to show you not a myth, but the reality. The way God has designed things to work, because if we can dismantle this myth and live in the reality as God defines reality, we may enjoy the gifts of marriage, dating, and singlehood. And so the story that I want us to look at is a very familiar one to many of you. In fact, this is the great love story of the Old Testament. It's one of those that if you were to try to pick a couple and their love story arc as the one you'd use as the prototype, I think this is the one many of us would look at. It's a familiar story. We're going to look at chapter 2 of the book here in a moment, but let me give you the setup. This is in the book of Ruth. And there are these two characters, these two individuals. The first one is a woman named... Ruth. I love it. The Bible gives us the name with the title so you can remember. Ruth, she is a young woman. She's a Moabitess. What does that mean? It means she is not from Israel. She's from this country, this land called Moab. And she met and married this Jewish boy. They get married and like any couple, they have plans most likely to have children, to raise a family, to grow their property, to become independent. But things happen as often they do. Something that she did not expect, he dies and she becomes a widow at a young age. But not only does he die, but his brother, her brother-in-law, dies. Not only that, but her father-in-law dies. And so now this young woman is a widow, and she does not have a husband. She does not have a father-in-law. She is a woman without a family protector. And she has an option to go back home to Moab, be with her people, where she will be taken care of. Or 
She can, use, she can choose a life of poverty, a life of vulnerability, and go with her now-widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, back to her hometown. And, and we learn something about the character of Ruth that is incredible. She decides to give up her preference, her protection, her provision, and she goes with her mother-in-law. And in that great passage, she says, I will go where you go, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so she goes back to Israel, to the region of Judea, to the town of Bethlehem, where she then takes care of her mother-in-law. And she does it by going and working in a field. In the Old Testament, the law was that if you were poor, you could go and you could collect grain behind the workers in the field so that you could provide just enough to feed yourself and your family. And so she goes. So she's a hard worker, and she gets in the field, and she's serving. And while she's in this particular field, this man named Boaz comes along. Just so happens she's actually gleaning in his field. And this moment begins that so much of the Bible hinges on. In fact, I'll tell you at the end where it kind of goes from here, but... But he meets her, and this is how their love story begins. And it is a radical, different, radically different story than the myth that we have been taught. And here's what it is. It says this in Ruth chapter 2, verse 5 through 12. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, meaning he asked the leader of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said... Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and, get this, has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So she's a hard worker. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, notice this, why have I found such favor in your eyes that, notice this, you notice me. Isn't this ultimately what we desire Whether you're a man or a woman, isn't it a desire that you would be noticed, that you would not be invisible to someone else? What is it about me? What is it that has caused you to notice me? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue, she says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Now, I know as we hear this, you go, okay, so what's the difference here? What's different from this than the myth that we've been taught By the way, just a little side note, the myth that we've been taught that there's one right person, that there's only one person out there for you, do you understand that's actually a pagan myth? You you know this. The first time we hear that myth is actually from a guy named Plato. He was a Greek philosopher. Again, Plato, not Plato, but Plato. How many of you know Plato? Anyone here? Some of you are like, I look smart. And it's okay, so Plato... He wrote in his symposium, this piece, he talks about this fictitious or this fictional dinner that was taking place and different people were standing and they were giving these 
stories and sharing these different ideas. When this one man named Aristophanes stands and he begins to tell what they believe to be the history of humanity. And he says that humanity began where there wasn't male and female, but rather everyone was just sort of one. It was male and female as one. By the way, doesn't that sound slightly 2021 Western thinking today? There's not male or female. But he goes on, he says, so because of this, because they were one, because they, they were united, they could do anything they wanted. And so the gods, feeling intimidated, said, oh, no, we've got to do something about this. Because if humanity is one, then they can accomplish anything. And so Zeus, the father of all the gods, he says, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to divide male and female at birth. And now instead of usurping us and coming after us with their focused power and attention, they will be divided Forever wandering, looking for their soulmate. Literally, the one that they were bonded to. Their other half. The one. And so this is the view that has been promulgated for so many years. But in this text, we learn something that is radically different from the false notion of there is only one person created for you. The first thing is this. Ruth was married once before she ends up with Boaz. So quick question, was she married to the wrong person or the right person? The answer is she was married to the right person. Josh, how do you know that? Here's how I know it. By the way, you're married. If you're married today, you are married to the right person. You know that? Let let me tell you how. (laughs) Don't laugh. Don't laugh, okay? You want to know how I know you are? It's because you're married to them. Lindsay, my wife, is the right person for Josh Diggs. You want to know how I know? I'm married to her. Doesn't matter if there was another possible option out there. Or four or five, that would have been great. The fact is, when I said, I do, and she said, she did, we were done. And you are too. If you say, I do, you're with the right person. And finding another right person will not fix what is wrong inside of you. But what will fix what is wrong in the marriage often begins with looking inside and saying, what is wrong? What can I change? How can I be who God has called me to be? And so the first thing you see in this text, there's so many things, but the first thing you see is that they both had a picture of who they were looking for before they found the other person, didn't they? Do you notice this? Her words to Boaz, why did you notice me? What, What was it about her that he saw? And then she, with Boaz, she sees something in him because she, she speaks with this tender affection and love. So the first question, if you're taking notes, first question I would invite you, especially if you're young or if you're dating or if you're hoping to get married one day, here's the first question. Question number one, have I made a list? Have you begun the process of saying who is, what is the kind of person I'm looking for? You say, Josh, isn't that a contradiction to what you said earlier, that there is not just one right person? And the answer is no, this is not a contradiction. I'm simply saying that there's not just one right person, but there is a kind of person that you should be looking for. If you are single, let me give you one characteristic. If you're a Christ follower, let me give you one non-negotiable of the kind of person you have to look for. You must look for someone who is also committed to Christ. Scripture says not to be unequally yoked. The idea of being strong one with Christ and one weak with Christ. What happens if you end up with one who loves Jesus and one who does not love Jesus? It's like two people in a rowboat and only one of them has an oar. What happens? You expend a lot of energy just going in circles. 
So the first thing I want you to understand is you need a list. What is the kind of person that you are looking for? What is the kind of person? Because if we were to make a list, you'd see that Ruth and Boaz, man, they've got the qualities. They've got the resume. In fact, look at this. Ruth, she's this kind of woman that, boy, all the guys, she cares for others. Think about her mother-in-law. She gave up her own preference to care for her mother-in-law. She loves God. She says, your God will be my God, and his influence is shaping her character the way she loves and cares and everything else. She's a hard worker. She goes into the field in the morning, and she doesn't rest except for one short break, and everyone's blown away. You say, well, how do we know that? Because they specifically mention that. She's a hard worker. She's respected by others, and she's respectful to others. She's not the one slandering people or gossiping. And she is very attractive. And all the men said, amen. Aren't you glad that this is on? You say, well, how do you know? Well, in chapter 3, Boaz, because Ruth begins to show him interest, he's like, yowza! That's in the original Hebrew. And he says, you could be going after all the young bucks, but you're coming after me. And he's blown away by this. So she is the kind of woman that he's looking for, but notice he's also the kind of man that she's looking for. He is respected by others, his workers, and he's respectful to them. When he arrives on the scene in, chapter, in verse 4, he blesses all the workers. The day laborers, he comes out and acknowledges them, and he blesses them, not in general, but he blesses them in God's name. In other words, he loves God and shows love to others because of God. He, too, is a hard worker. He's out there overseeing and managing what is happening. He cares for other people. In fact, he provides for Ruth. He gives her some grain, and he protects her. He says, you work in my field. Don't go elsewhere. I'll make sure nothing happens to you. And finally, he's older. Now, listen, one of the things I think is so interesting, these last two are the ones that we almost always, almost always focus on, right? Right? When we think about the person that we're looking for, the kind of person we're looking for, it's always about the attractiveness. And there's some sort of perfect age range. And and maybe it's a certain age type, you know, like someone this age or this age. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. I love the fact that Scripture says it's okay to want a spouse that is attractive. By the way, all the men say what to that? Amen. It's a good thing. But listen, listen to me, listen. Scripture is also very clear. That given enough time, gravity wins. So if you want someone who is good looking, if that is the only thing you're looking for, you're going to have to trade up every few years. Because there's only so much paint you can put on any barn to make it look good. Are we tracking? And by the way, fellas, (laughs) i got to be honest, we're no peach either. If someone were to cut some of us in half, And look at the rings like a ring on a tree. Many of us have quite a few more rings today than when we got married, right? So the point is this. What are you looking for? You need to have a list that says, this is what I'm looking for. But a more important question, more than just simply that, is this next one. Am I living up to my own list? See, it's easy to say everything would be all right if you were a better person. My marriage would be better if you were the right kind of person. This dating relationship would be going somewhere if you were just a better person. But the question before us is not, is not, is not, it's not, it's not them. It's really, it's me. Am I living up to it? How tragic would it have been for Boaz to have noticed Ruth, but Boaz to lack the character of a man Ruth would want to partner with? 
How tragic would it be for Ruth to see this man who is living and leading well, but for her to lack the character in the kind of woman he is looking for? See, it's not enough to say, what am I looking for? A better question is, who am I becoming? The law of attraction puts it this way. I am, I attract what I am. I attract what I am. Not what I want, not what I wish, but what I am. I think one of the best examples of this that I saw really came from the 1990s sitcom Seinfeld, when this one character, sort of a short, stocky guy by the name of George Costanza, is, by the way, anyone following my reference so far, we good? Some of you? Okay. Younger people, Google it later. George is being set up by his friend Jerry, and he begins to ask some questions about the kind of woman that Jerry's trying to set him up with. And he asks this one great question, and here it is. What's he want? Thick head of hair. Does he got it? Nope. Silly illustration. But friends, we get what we already have. Instead of saying, well, my spouse or this person or that situation, the question before us and what we see here is you must be the kind of person that the kind of person you're looking for is looking for. Or to put it this way, this question Am I as intentional on becoming the right kind of person as I am on finding the right kind of person? Before you stop with, I'm looking for this, you need to begin with, am I the person God is calling me to be? Because if you find the right person, but you're the wrong kind of person, it will not go well. I I wish if there was like one thing, when it comes to dating relationships, if it could come to marriage, that I could pour into my children, it would be to tell my son Stephen and my daughter Emma that beauty is fading and fleeting, Scripture says. You find a person who loves God, but you be a person who loves God, whose life is being molded and formed into the image of God. Because you cannot fix another person and you cannot fix what they do, but you can, by God's power and grace, change who you are. And that's how. If your marriage is not where you want it to be, if your dating relationship is not where you want it to be, if it is not as you think it ought to be, it begins by asking, am I becoming the kind of person that the kind of person I'm looking for is looking for? And I think this is such an important thing, especially in our culture, where it is always someone else's fault for my problems. But the scripture, what you see here is you see these two people. One, they see the kind of person they're looking for and they are becoming the kind of people that God has called them to be. Now, if we're to end it here and just say, just be a better person, you could say, thank you very much, but now I feel crushed. Because let's be frank, have you ever tried to fix something about yourself, but you found you can't fix it? 
Let's do it this way. Okay. Three words. New Year's resolution. Have you ever had a resolution one year that you just keep sort of taking over and renewing every year? Why? Because simply saying, I will try harder, I will work harder, I will be more intentional, does not work. Any more than it does simply saying, I'm going to think better or be better. You and I, on our own, have no ability to completely transform the way we think, feel, speak, and behave. It is beyond us. This is why, this is why, and and by the way, you say, well, why is that? Because in Genesis chapter 3, we broke the universe. You understand that, right? Christians, we broke the universe. Because of our sin, sin is simply saying, I will be God, and God, you can take a hike. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to adopt a worldview that conforms to my preferences. We said, God, I will be God, not you. And because of that, our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with the world is broken. This is why we have hurricanes and earthquakes and COVID viruses. The world is broken. But also, our relationship with ourself is broken. This is why, no matter how much you do to improve yourself, isn't it true you always wish you could be just a little better than you are. We never feel fully alive and at home in our own skin. This is why you feel awkward when you have no reason to feel awkward. And we broke our relationships with each other. This is why that desire for nakedness of being known and fully known with someone else is a desire, but we always feel like we're sort of hitting this ceiling with it, don't we? So for me to simply say, okay, church, here's the way that you have a better relationship. Focus on who you're becoming. Now go, have a great week. If you've lived more than a week, you go, that's, thanks, Diggs, I can't do that. But see, here's the promise, here's the beautiful news. The Lord does not tell you to go do it yourself. He says, come unto me, all who are weary, just tired of it. And heavy laden, meaning they're just burdened by what's on their shoulders of life, the expectations and the inability of fixing. He says, you come to me and I will give you rest. And I love this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God doesn't simply say, I'll give you rest. He says, I'm going to transform you when he says these words. I, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. See, you can't change what's wrong with you, so I will put something new in you. And you say, but, but God... You put something in me, I'm still pushing out junk. There's still all this unresolved hurt, all this unresolved daddy issues, all these unresolved frustrations, all these unresolved past wounds. I can't fix it. He says, I'll give you a new heart, but I'll also remove. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, that that hard, cold block, and give you a heart of flesh. He says, It begins with you coming to me. If you want the kind of relationship God has designed you for, if you're dating, if you're married, if you're single again, if you want healthy relationships, it does not begin by pointing fingers and saying, I'm with the wrong person, I just need to find a new right person. It begins by saying, I need to become who God has called me to be. In fact, put it up here, this last slide. All life-giving relationships with someone else comes from a life-giving relationship with God. It comes from the one who says, 
you broke it, but I'll fix it. And so on the cross, he came. He opened his arms and said, give me your junk. The pride, the arrogance, the things you can't get over, the things that are causing issues in your relationships, you take it to me, I will take it to the cross. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day. And when he left that tomb, he said, I'm going to show you how to leave death and enter into true life as well. It begins with God. It begins with Jesus. You know, I've said the myth is that there is no one right person for you, but maybe that's not true. Because Scripture does say that there is one who was made for you and made for me from before time began. And this man named Jesus knows you more than anyone else, and yet in spite of that, he loves you and has chosen you. And if you will simply step into relationship with him or recommit to relationship with him, he will work in you and through you to bring life in places that may not. So this morning, before we finish this, I want to invite you just to pause and to process this. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to take a moment to consider what we've talked about. And over the next couple minutes, I'm going to invite you just to, to ask the Lord, God, how do you want me to become the kind of person that you've always dreamt that I can be? Maybe you need to do a personal inventory and, and articulate the areas that you're just feeling frustrated and disappointed because things aren't adding up the way you always hope. And so we pray. Father, we thank you for choosing us. I'm not lovable. And I certainly am not the kind of husband that my wife needs or deserves. But you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, can change me. And you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, can change every person in this room. Lord, you are the great renovator. You come in and you clean up and you push out what is broken and you straighten things and you make in broken people whole, healthy happy hearts because your spirit when he indwells us he changes us lord we ask not for our spouse not for others but for us this morning that you would do a great work in us so that we may become the kind of men and women that you've called us to be may we seek the one for whom our hearts were made so that as you draw us together with another person for life we would bring into that relationship the life that you called us to We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.